Welcome to Invest Stories, a podcast about real stories, real estate, and taking real action. Join hosts John Cooper and Kyle Robertson as they talk investing, mindset, and taking that first step. We all have a story. What's yours? The Invest Stories Podcast. Welcome to Tuesday Techers. I know it's a cliche name. Uh, Investories podcast is all about adding value, all about adding those digestible bits of content and information. And we're super excited to bring you part two of this interview. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Please reach out to us anytime you have any questions or just want to connect or say hi or say we're doing really well or hey, you could even say we're not doing well, but please don't do that. Uh, Investories podcast at gmail.com and investories pod on your socials and we look forward to hearing from you and uh without further ado here's part two there we go can we move into your your strategy so um in terms of was was the first i was doing some reading uh, and some listening ahead of ahead of this call i don't want to cut you off i forgot uh you went over the mindset thing i don't want to miss the uh, are you going back to the mindset or oh yeah let's uh, let's go mindset yeah so sorry. So I did mention that um, when I went to Steve Trang's, I wasn't in the right mindset. Um, and I didn't know this at the time, but Steve Trang is one of the top sales coaches and real estate coaches in, in the country. People pay a lot of money for his coaching. Um, with me being with his brokerage, I had access to him every Tuesday. And this thing was sink or swim. He is just like, I, go do your research, find what you want to ask me, and then come ask me. Um, so... I did all of those things and his his goal was to make a hundred millionaires. And I, one day I went to him, I was just like, Hey, I want to be, how do I become one of your 100 millionaires? He said, give me three years. And I was just like, how do I do this, 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 and this? He was like, Hey, go read this book. The book he suggested to me, which is my, what changed everything for me um, is called the miracle morning. Um, and it's, if you win your morning, you win your day. And so I went and read that book and I went and changed my routine. I was so excited, um, to go to him. I was like, Hey Steve, I wake up, I'm waking up at 5am now. And he laughed at me and he said, ha, that's funny. He was like, yeah, millionaires wake up at, uh, 5 a.m. He said, billionaires wake up at 4 a.m. I was like, oh, okay. So I started waking up at 4.30. I now wake up at um, 4 a.m. But then again, I wanted to know all this information. And he didn't tell me I, I wasn't ready, but he would just say, hey, go read this book. And it would frustrate me because I'm like, you're not giving me what I want here. Um, he had me read The Go-Giver, um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, The Millionaire Next Door, all these amazing books. And then I caught on. I was like, oh, I get it. Not the right uh, mind, uh, not the right mindset. So I started reading mindset books, started doing um, the time blocking and doing all of these things. And then the information started to come. Um, and of course, I got my license in 2020. I got my first sober living from that gentleman um, that I waited on the, at the, t- uh, the tables. I got my first sober living in February of 2020. And then I had 10 of them by August of 2020. Wow. And I, I guess, you know, I think what you've touched upon is really interesting and what a lot of people, I certainly overlooked this, right? I, I was like, oh, I, I got to a point where I wasn't happy. 
in my life because I, I wasn't taking ownership of, of what I was doing and how I was spending my time. And I was in a W2 and just in a cycle of, of kind of earning money, spending money, earning money, spending money. And I was like, well, how do I grow? I don't feel like I'm, I'm kind of at my potential and I still don't feel like that. Um, but I'm closer. Um, and what was interesting and, and what you said, Patrick, and a lot of people might skip back to is you get up at 4am and I'm going to, I'm going to agree with you on that. I get up between four, four thirty every day. And people say to me, how, and I ask them two questions. What time do you go to bed? And what do you do before you go to bed? And the amount of time that people say, I go to bed at 11 midnight. And I say, what do you do before you go to bed? I watch TV. It's like, well, turn the TV off, go to bed at 10, wake up at four or go to bed at nine, wake up at four and you've got seven hours sleep and you get that killer morning routine and you have time, you have time to breathe, time to meditate. If you're religious, time to pray, time to work on your fitness and time to just absorb the day and plan it out and, and get ahead. That's how people get ahead because they plan. Um, so yeah, Miracle Morning is an amazing book and I, I kind of stolen a lot of things for my evening and morning routine from, from that book and well worth a read. Um, so no, I, I think a lot of people might go, what, 4am? Are you crazy? Uh, but, do, but just try I it. Do, I, do I do believe, believe um, me, I love the 4am because my family isn't up. Nobody messes with me and on my drive home, nobody's on the freeway and I get a lot done. I do. I'm in bed. Laying down uh, with my wife at 7 a.m. and I'm probably in uh, to sleep by 8:39. Um, but I do believe if somebody has organization, they can get up at eight o'clock. But they still that that time at night. There's no TV. If you're focused and you you can be centered and at peace and get a lot, you can get a lot done at night as well. True. Uh, definitely the time is uh, the gyms are not as packed. It's definitely a different um there's a personal rhythm to it right you're right like you could you could do your mid uh, your miracle morning in the evening right when you when you're done if you're a late person um yeah you don't have to get up at stupid o'clock but you yeah there's there's some kind of time trade-off which is really interesting um so you said you you then um got your first um sober living facility so you did you buy your first one or was it um is arbitrage the right, right word rental arbitrage man for the majority of them so again i borrowed money to go to that disruptors course uh when i met zach um he said i'm gonna give you an opportunity i have a house meet me here tomorrow with first month's uh rent and deposit and i'm like yes sir i'll do it and again i had to borrow money for my first one um so i borrowed money and I, I risked, risked it all, man. Um, I didn't have rent for the next month, but I knew I was going to succeed. I knew I'd be successful at it. And, um, there was a, definitely a hiccup in there though. <laughs> Where did that money come from? First of all, before we get to the hiccup, uh, my mother-in-law, um, helped us with, uh, the money. And I think some from my mother as well to get that first one. Um, going. that's mothers. That's risky. That's a risky place to borrow money, right? It was risky. They didn't want to. They're like, you've never done this before. Uh, and then I was just like, uh, please. I mean, I think we asked one and they didn't give it to us all. So we had to ask both to come up with the, the, the remainder. So, <laughs> 
That's awesome. And you said a hiccup. What was the hiccup? So my first sober living, I opened it up um, within a week. It was completely full. Um, and the manager who I had, uh, I was speaking to him. He turned rent into to me the first two weeks. The third week came around. I called. He wasn't answering. I go to the house um, and he's gone. He's gone with the rent money. Um, the guy who answered the door had a vodka bottle in his hand and come to find out he was letting everybody drink, get high. And, um, we kick them all out, get new people within three days and then good old COVID happens. <laughs> um, COVID happened and, um, everybody lost their job and there was a temp service, uh, temp temporary work service right around the corner that was hiring for Amazon. Every single guy in that house got a job at Amazon and caught up on rent and think it was all, it all worked out. Yeah, that's really good. And I guess the job part is, you know, for, it's not just finance, right? It's, it's, it's not just a financial piece. It's, it's the kind of peace of mind moving on, having something to do piece as well for, for those gentlemen. So I'm glad that worked out. What did so that first deal? What did the finances look like? Are you able to kind of talk through the numbers on that? Uh, so my first year, um, I was still uh, serving tables. My goal was to get four of them to replace my income at uh, the serving, and I was doing real estate, selling houses. I sold twelve houses my first year, um, so I'm doing these things, and uh, I don't take any profit. I just uh, save the profit, have enough money, open another one, open another one, open another one. Um, and COVID also happened for me in my job. And, uh, I think we shut down in like, uh, March or April. So I no longer have that. Um, real estate's kind of going slow because of COVID. And so that made me fully focus and have a lot of time on this. So, um, by, my 10th one where we're making money, but I start marketing and there's a company that's using me and I, I start reverse engineering to see what they need. And I said, what if I could provide you a house, but you have to pay me this amount, whether there is zero people or 10 people in here, would you do it? Because they were turning away um, people and I wanted to solve that problem for them. And they said, absolutely, we'll take five. Um, so they were paying me $10,000 a month for each house. So now I have $50,000 coming in every month on top of the other five. Um, so uh, my first year, just with the sober living part of things, um, I grossed uh, half a million um, with the first 10 in the first year. Um, in that same year, I met my business partner and we started doing the behavioral health side where you're able to provide a service and accept insurance. And that became uh, my full focus. Interesting. So in terms of that, that first company, was that a, that wasn't an insurance company, right? Was it a program or 
what kind of uh, organization? So it was just uh, the terms get uh, mixed up and come to find out now that I'm reaching out all over the country, there is different terms for uh, different things. I call them different things out here. A lot of them are just group homes. But the thing that I was doing here in Arizona, it's called sober living specifically for people trying to get sober and basically sober livings, they are self pay out of their pocket, 175 bucks a week, uh, per bed. So, um, they pay you out of their pocket. The insurance thing, um, we had a commercial space where we provide one-on-one -on -one therapy, group therapy, group activities, and, um, it's like the first uh, first or second step before going to a sober living and seeing the underlining problems, uh, the therapy and stuff that is involved. And um, you're able to bill insurance, which you don't have to worry about or chase down. And um, it is uh, a significantly more. Yeah, a lot, lot less uh, administration, I guess. Or um, yeah, so that that's that's super interesting. How so? Moving from kind of just being just just marketing to kind of individuals um, into insurance. What what did that process look like? Did were you approached, or did you make some industry connections? Um, so uh, it's a story. So. Um, a gentleman, when I'm doing the sober living thing, uh, a gentleman reached out to me and he said that um, everybody in his house is getting high. Uh, he's not in a good space. He doesn't want to relapse. And he asked me if one of my houses accepted insurance. I said, no, it doesn't. But you can come to my house free of charge. Get out of the situation that you're in. Uh, he came from the prison mentality where he didn't want to feel like he owed me something. Uh, two weeks later, that gentleman, wrong place, wrong time, he was murdered. Um, so I vouched for that to never happen to me again. So I went back deep dive on how to do that. And just like the vaping world, the behavioral health world and insurance world, everybody thinks they have the golden goose egg. They don't want to give you their secret. So um, it lit a fire under my butt and I made it a mission to figure that out and conquer it and while I was doing that uh, uh, a woman um, contacted me and she wanted to do women sober living and the insurance thing and so we partnered together and uh, between her and I uh, everything blew up the marketing was pretty much word of mouth um, at that point it's just we delivered a product that was better than everybody else and we went above and beyond. We actually put the client first. We didn't care about money. We wanted that individual to succeed and we were willing to go to any lengths to see that uh, person succeed. Um, in our first year of doing the behavioral health company, we helped over uh, 500, 500 people in the first year. We had over 30 homes, 60 employees, and we were able to gross 18 million in our. Incredible. And in terms of employees, so is that management, cleaning? What does that look like? Do you have a whole roster of staff? So, yeah, you mentioned the, the less administration. Sober living, it's super easy. There's no overhead. The manager's free and it takes up very little of your time. The behavioral health side, you're now dealing with people uh, that are 
brand new in recovery. There could be some mental things there, behavioral health things there. So it is very fragile. And we, um, all of those employees, uh, you have to pay the house managers. You now have doctors, nurses, and therapists on your payroll. Um, you have peer support, administration, transportation, marketing. The, it's a full-blown business. Um, and it has a lot of moving parts, especially when you grow that fast. Mm -hmm. That's really, really interesting. Um, if, if, if I might, um, pivoting to kind of the real estate portion of that, what makes a good, um, I guess, sober living facility or, or kind of uh, the, the health uh, facility what what kind of makes a good property for that um you i mean just like started when you are you're buying real estate you do your market analysis and go for your buy box and uh, do the market data in that area same thing with the sober living depending on what area you're going to um i like five bedrooms um because of obviously there's permitted and you want to be able to put 10 people in a house so you have to make sure the area is is good. Um, the neighborhoods are good. Make sure it's close to like public transportation, grocery stores, and you want to make sure that there's jobs available because a lot of these people come to you with no jobs. Um, you want to make sure that there is hospitals, nonprofits, uh, companies that may pay for housing or a lot of homeless um, and just make sure in that area that there's people to network with or make sure it's not oversaturated. Um, some cities, uh, every city and state regulations are different and every uh, permit and zoning are different. So those are definitely things that you have to look at and research and make sure you're doing your due diligence. Yes. I was going to say is how how does that how is that kind of handled or have you found there been pushback from local communities local councils at all So here in Arizona now that I'm I've explored uh, all over the country now in Arizona there are a lot more stricter uh, restrictions um mm -hmm. because it is um Phoenix Arizona is ninth in um public government money. So there's a lot of money being spent here. There's a lot of homeless, there's a lot of uh, population. So it's very restrictive. In certain cities, uh, one of the cities like Phoenix, uh, you can have five group homes within a quarter mile and that's everything. Group home is old people home, sober living home, veteran home, all these different things. You can have five within a quarter mile, but other city, uh, cities, you could only have one within a quarter mile. I mean, a uh, whole mile. Um, so it's different and different areas are very populated and restricted. And that, that, that's interesting. And I guess that's the kind of that might even be people who are looking at this strategy. That might be their first start point, which is where you're looking at, get the legislation down. So that's um, that's really interesting in in terms of um, and, and switching to kind of the your first kind of buying of a home. What what did that look like? How did you how did you finance it? Um, and what kind of what money did you kind of outlay to, to fit it out? So uh, Zach, again, my uh, business mentor, the guy who I get the majority of my houses from, um, 
he is the number one uh, single person buyer here in Arizona. He owns over 215 properties and he's flipping five to 10 of them every month. And uh, some of the homes, when he gets them before he flips them, he caters to what I need in these homes. And uh, a lot of times he was just like, you're gonna buy this one, right? You're gonna buy this one, right? And um, so when I got the opportunity from having money, obviously now it's time to invest, get that passive income, get the depreciation and get those things. So uh, all of the homes that I have bought are homes that I was arbitraging uh, from him. And uh, eventually I made enough money to be able to buy them. Oh, cool. So you could then effectively convert them to your own uh, property. And, and do you finance through conventional means or is there um, business loans attached? Or uh, The first couple um, were just regular loans. Um, one of the properties that I bought was a seller finance. Uh, and then with the uh, with me having good income and with me owning some properties, I was able to cross collateralize the ones that I have and then with my income to get a jumbo uh, loan. So the last purchase that I did was uh, a seven home package. <laughs> and in terms of the seller finance deal, and we're we're on a bit of a seller finance tear of the last few weeks. Um, what did, how did that come about? What did that look like? The, the golden goose, the unicorn of seller financing? Seller finance, I'm not one of the, I mean, I'm learning the whole uh, subject to creative thing as well right now. And I'm trying to get more uh, in depth just to have more knowledge. But this one, uh, it came to me through, um, through Zach. He was partnered on this deal and he's like, yeah, I'm gonna put this on, on the market and sell it. And I was just like, wait, that's the perfect area. I really want this house. And he was like, well, it's, I'm partnered on this one. And uh, we just negotiated the deal. I was able to put little money up front and then the interest, um, interest over so many years. And um, it worked out really well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Investories podcast. And uh, as you can imagine, we're super stoked with that content, amazing strategies, amazing techniques um, that we've really been able to dig into. And uh, we're looking forward to bringing kind of the next phase of that, which is really all about uh, the case study kind of real world examples and how you can do the same. We're going to call it Wednesday Wins and we're going to tackle that on the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Investories Podcast. We all have a story. What's yours? The Investories Podcast.